Welcome to The First Incision, a CMF podcast where we look at topics at the interface of faith, medicine, nursing and midwifery that affect our Christian lives in today's world. I'm your host, Steve Fouch. Now, since the start of spring, life in the UK has been dominated by the outbreak of COVID-19. And we saw a massive mobilisation and reorganisation in the NHS to address the challenges that we were facing from this new and still poorly understood disease. In the midst of this massive reorganisation, a lot of thinking had to go into how best to allocate limited resources as we faced a potential overload of the National Health Service. So two of our members, Melody Redman and James Haslam, put together a paper looking at these questions and applying some biblical principles to the questions of how we allocate resources. Now, that sounds a bit dry, but actually it is quite a serious issue and could literally be a matter of life and death. So it's my pleasure to have both Melody and James with me today to talk about some of these issues and to reflect on how things have perhaps worked out in practice over the last few months of the epidemic here in the UK. So welcome James and Melody. Um, can I get you just to introduce yourselves and say a little bit about your, your backgrounds and, and how you got involved in this uh, particular paper? James, would you like to go first? Sure. So yeah, I'm, I'm James Haslam. I'm a consultant in anaesthesia and intensive care medicine in Salisbury, um, uh, which is in Wiltshire in, in southern England. Um, I, I went to medical school and did um, all my junior doctor training in, in South London. Uh, but the family and I moved down to Salisbury about five years ago when I became a consultant. And we're, we're loving life here. It's a great place to, to live and work. And we're plugged into our local New Frontiers church here, Grace Church. And, and that's kind of our setup. Thank you, James. And Melody. Yeah, hello, it's a privilege to join you today. So I'm Melody Redman. I'm a junior doctor, normally in clinical academic paediatrics training, but this year I'm on a year out of training where I've been looking at workforce planning in paediatrics and how we can try and um, model our planning to try and make sure we have the right number of doctors in the future. During the peak of the COVID pandemic, I was obviously back in hospital medicine where I actually was working in adult medicine. Grant, so you both you came together to write this paper back in March. And at that stage, it was very much the early stages of the pandemic. And there were many concerns uh, being raised about whether the NHS would cope and how we were going to allocate resources like ventilators and other um, intensive care beds and resources. Can you say a little bit about what spurred you into writing this and, and how you, you, you got into, into collaborating together on this paper? Yeah, so I think um, at the time of writing this paper, it was really clear to us that as the international situation was evolving, it was really important that as Christian doctors, we decided um, we needed to think very clearly about how we would make any decisions that might need to be made. And I think... Um, as medics, we often triage patients, where we often consider resource allocation, but never in our generation have we really had to consider what we might do if we get to a situation where demand completely outstrips supply. Obviously, we've weathered many winter crises, had issues with seasonal illnesses and occasional shortages of medicines, but we'd never faced something like the situation um, that we've been seeing and we really wanted to make sure that we were preparing how we might begin to address some of those questions. Yeah, I think that's right. I, I, I remember um, sort of early March, we, we were, uh, and probably even before that, we were starting to see uh, things um, get really concerning, particularly in places like Northern Italy. Um, and we have uh, professional contacts there and 
we're, we're starting to see hospitals just get completely inundated with uh, with patients suffering with um, this novel coronavirus and um, and so it really started ringing alarm bells and we started our, our own preparations in our hospital for how we we're going to um, prepare for the onslaught um, and I remember John Greenall asked uh, both Melody and I to to write something along the lines of what a Christian approach to some of these difficult ethical decisions around how you, how you decide which patients you're going to treat when you don't have enough resources to treat all the all the potentially treatable patients and um, which was something that at that stage was a a, a, a real potential and and so uh, we were going to write something separate but actually we found that we were writing on very similar lines and so we decided to co-author this um briefing paper together um which we worked on together and actually had some input from other guys in the cmf as well um and so it was published for the cmf and also republished with the christian journal for global health um and uh, essentially it's a reflection on some of the UK guidance has come out uh, over March and April on how to make these um, very tricky ethical decisions about who to treat when you don't have enough resources to treat everyone and uh, kind of triage ethics or uh, healthcare resource allocation ethics. Um, and so we reflect on the, the nationally published guidance and, and give our own reflections on, on how that interfaces with a, a Christian ethic and how as Christians we can respond. I mean, that's a very interesting point you both raised there. That, of course, the the issue of allocation of scarce resources is well. I mean, it's something we always have to juggle with in in the health professions. But perhaps in the West, we've not had to deal with it in quite such a way as many developing countries do on a day to day basis. And uh, I think it's very encouraging that the paper was picked up by the uh, Christian Journal for Global Health, so that that's that some of those discussions have gone sort of more global. The BMA and the Royal College of Physicians actually did produce some guidelines fairly early on in this process. James, do you want to say a little bit about those? And, and do you think that they were helpful? Did they raise any questions or concerns for you? Do you think that they were moving along the right lines? So, yeah, I'll just, I'll just do a whistle-stop tour of the main UK medical guidance that came out during the period. So I think it's sort of around mid-March, NICE published uh, a rapid clinical guideline on critical care in adults in the COVID-19 pandemic. And essentially, I think in some ways, I think something needed to be published on this. And it, it feels a little rushed. Um, I think mm. it, it tried to make into an algorithm the sort of decision-making pathway for how you decide which patients will benefit from ICU. But to my mind, the algorithm is somewhat simplistic and it really focuses on the clinical frailty score, which, although useful, is not a one-size-fits-all uh, tool. And uh, although, to be fair, the algorithm does have some exclusions, such as patients uh, uh, under the age of 65 and those with stable disability, um, it really puts a great emphasis on that clinical frailty score. Um, Can you say a, just a little a, bit about what the clinical frailty score means? Because not everybody will be familiar with that. So basically, there's a, a, a scale from one to nine, with one being very fit, two being well, three managing well, four vulnerable, five mildly frail. And that was a key, key cutoff for, for the NICE algorithm. Then okay. six moderately frail. Uh, then seven severely frail, eight very severely frail, and nine terminally ill. And basically, they're arguing, and there's some evidence to, to support it, that patients who are at stage five, mildly frail or, or more frail than that, 
um, and particularly those over the age of 65, are, are less likely to benefit from um, invasive critical care, mm. um, and particularly in such a severe uh, a disease as COVID-19 uh, when you become critically ill. Now, I, so I think that's a factor, but I think, to my mind, the NICE guidance put a lot of emphasis on, on just that one scale, which mm. I think it's a lot more nuanced than that. And it's interesting that as, as more guidance came out over the time later in, on, on into March and into April, and uh, you, you had um, the Royal College of Physicians guidance, which kind of deferred to the NICE uh, algorithm, uh, but did give some extra um, help in terms of things like recommending support for the very difficult decisions with uh, things such as clinical ethics committees and, and team decision making when it becomes very difficult. Um, you also so had the, the British Medical Association published a much more detailed and I think more nuanced uh, guidance uh, again around that March-April turning point and I think that was largely very helpful and gave a, a lot more detailed ethical guidance and, and how to handle some of those potentially difficult decisions that might have to be made. There was a really more controversial section in, in that guidance which was talking about prioritizing um, certain individuals on not on mm. clinical grounds but on social utility so uh, people with potentially crucial jobs for for society might be prioritized which i think is extremely controversial and we address that in our in our briefing paper yeah. and uh, melody and i both feel that 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 really shouldn't should not be one of the uh, grounds of deciding who should um, necessarily be selected for for invasive ventilation or other organ support and then actually subsequent to us publishing our paper there, there was some really excellent i think guidance published by the intensive care society uh, which i think um over time has had more and more input into that guidance and particularly from the critical care community and i think that is really quite helpful guidance and what that does is it really emphasizes evidence-based medicine so that you're you're using um, evidence of outcomes to help you decide which patients are going to do well or, or, or not or are not going to do well and so you can to help you select and also individualizing the decision to that specific patient not using a one-size-fits-all algorithm but actually having a senior decision maker a consultant intensivist making a decision about that individual patient on a case-by-case -case basis using their own experience and the evidence base and then the, the multiple nuanced factors in that individual patient to decide whether they warrant intensive care and I think that guidance also reflects um, how these decisions will face more or less pressure according to where we are in the pandemic and so it recognizes the fact that as things become more pressurized, there'll be more need for what we call mutual aid, where patients can be potentially transferred to places that have spare capacity. And, and, and so ideally, we'd only be making those kind of decisions once the whole of the NHS's critical care capacity has been exhausted, which was something, fortunately, we've never reached this thus far, mm -hmm. and would have, would have been hopefully a long, long way ahead, and, and would mean that you can retain standard decision making until you're the point at which all the capacity is exhausted and i've got to say I, i've got, got to congratulate the uk government for really having put lots and lots of effort and resources and finances into increasing the, uh, the supply of resources to meet this demand both nationally regionally and locally um, and we can give examples such as the nightingale hospitals 
uh, and uh, creating more critical care capacity in beds mm. and uh, purchasing equipment, staffing, uh, all those were ramped up in order to meet that demand. Um, now, I think there comes a point at which it's not just a physical bed space that it meets the needs of a patient. You have to have trained teams of staff to, to staff that bed. And that is not something that can be magicked up. You can't create more ICU nurses without a great deal of effort and time um, because they're highly skilled professionals. Mm. And uh, that's really, the, it's the caring that really helps people get better. It's critical care. And that's not something that could be magicked up necessarily, but there were models for how we would cope with that. And, and certain hospitals had to rely on those models where you have a single ICU nurse, maybe um, sort of supervising maybe four non-ICU trained nurses or even healthcare uh, support workers in order to care for the number of ventilated patients. And that's the kind of thing that we were looking at in terms of spreading the resource to, to meet the demand. And it is quite remarkable how rapidly that upscaled and, and that ultimately wasn't, was actually mostly dealt with within existing hospitals uh, the, the fact that the nightingale hospitals were almost all mothballed, mothballed within a matter of weeks of being opened is perhaps a testimony to how well that was all actually organized that that extra capacity wasn't needed in the end let's hope it's not needed again but we don't know of course we'll come on to that later on but what might happen later on this year so going back to your paper can you outline some of the core principles that you argued for and, and how we can make some of those decisions? I mean, you've touched on some of the things that have been looked at by the, the, the Society of Intensivists, but what, what about in other areas? Melody, do you want to uh, respond to that? Yeah, so obviously I um, would encourage you to read the paper because it's, it's a long and purposefully long document to try and cover all of the different important angles because it's hard to shorten down what is a complicated debate. But the kind of key principles that we based it on, so we used, um, we kind of used our biblical worldview alongside um, an respected framework in medical ethics. So starting with our biblical worldview, we were considering some core biblical principles such as the call to love your neighbour, to be compassionate, to be good stewards and to treat everyone as though they are all of equal worth, no matter where they fit in society. So we use that. And obviously the way that we love our neighbour and the way that we show compassion will be different for different individuals. And from a medical point of view, that may look different depending on their current health status or their current clinical need. But then we match that also with an existing framework. So we use Beauchamp and Childress's Four Pillars of Medical Ethics as our framework. So that's looking at autonomy, beneficence, non-maleficence and justice. And that's widely recognised framework. So we were kind of using our existing biblical worldview and principles to try and answer some of the questions that are posed when we look at decision making from those four different ethical angles. OK, so how do you think the, a, a Christian approach actually shapes the way we approach those different areas? I think one of the key things is that it's really challenging to try and match this idea of compassion and treating everyone as though they are of equal worth with this idea of stewardship. And the key thing that we did see in the response and that has been really important is that decision making about um, prioritisation of resources should come after trying to ensure that there are enough resources. So the first priority should always be ensuring that there are sufficient resources and then having to decide who gets them should be really the last resort. And so 
throughout the paper we kind of unpick that further and, and discuss kind of what that means and I think it is a really challenging area and the most important thing is the responses that were done prior to needing to make those decisions so the upscaling of resources the availability of the Nightingale hospitals the cancellation of routine work and you know blocking routine appointments it was far more important to deal with them before having to decide who gets the last resources. Yeah, who do you put on the last ventilator when you've got three patients and two ventilators left sort of scenario? Mm. You don't want to be making the decisions at that point. I think one, one thing that was really encouraging out of all of it is that we did see as a society this idea of protecting the clinically vulnerable. Mm. And one thing that was quite heartwarming in a way is that we did see different parts of society giving up things that were important to them in order to protect others which is really positive I think and I think is something that we should really reflect on positively and be really grateful for. I think it's adding on to that Steve I, I think it's really quite interesting to see how influenced the, the even the ethical guidance that we've talked about from the different medical bodies has been by centuries of Christian ethical thinking. Mm. Um, you, you know, you think about the medical ethical culture in the UK, and I think it's quite hard for us to take a step back and just to see how hugely influenced it is by centuries of, of Christian influence. And I think that's really quite encouraging that largely people do agree that um, everyone is of equal value and of worth and that we should do our utmost to protect and defend lives and try and save as many lives as possible. That's really reassuring to me. Indeed. And, and it is quite a, a, a change, I think, in the public discourse around a lot of these issues has, has come out, I think, over these last few months. Do you, do you see that as a, an ongoing thing or do you think it, it may be just a little blip and that we're going to go back to some of our slightly more utilitarian ways of looking at things in the near future do you think that, that some of these changes in perspective are, are, are going to stick or not i think it's difficult to tell you know it's too soon to say yeah it, it probably is too soon to say mm -hmm. i think you know I, th I think people really did recognize that with every death and we were hearing the death tally every day mm. and that each of those represented a, a real a real person who was loved by a family and and it was tragic and that really resonated and hit home with people and yes probably the majority of those lives lost were, were people towards the end of the, their lives and potentially with existing diseases what we call comorbidities but that's not to say that it still wasn't a tragic loss mm. and I, I i think in some ways that spoke volumes of of just how precious people are and and how much society does value and how how really uh, strongly people felt about the government safeguarding vulnerable lives um, and mm. the, the lengths to which people would go to in order to help facilitate that. It, it really does speak volumes, as Melody was talking about. I agree. I, it was interesting. I listened to the opening programme for the New Times radio um, app the other day, and one of the things that they were covering in their news programme every hour they would do one story of someone who had died during the pandemic and i think it's interesting and, and they're not the only media outlet that's done that it's that sense of wanting to tell the stories of those who died as people who mattered people behind the statistics yeah one can only hope that that kind of thinking that way of responding to things is, is something that is going to stick going back to 
how things were thinking particularly back into april i suppose really when when we hit what we now know is the peak of uh, of infections and deaths did you, any of you have to either of you or any of your colleagues have to sort of deal with any of these resource dilemmas in practice face to face i mean obviously without going into in individual instances but was this something you were actually seeing or did it not ever hit that point where you were working? Why did you go first, Melody? Well, so in April, I um, was redeployed to adult medicine, which as a doctor who's been in paediatrics for the last few years was a very steep learning curve. And that recognised the fact that people were being moved into different roles to try and make sure that those who had, for example, intensive care experience could be moved where their expertise could be um, better used. So my experience in adult medicine, so I was largely on the COVID wards, but also on the other wards, which were trying to be protected from anyone that had the COVID positive um, result. My experience was that the teams worked really hard together to make sure that everyone could receive the best care that could be provided. And a real notable difference for me was the fact that a lot of really senior clinicians um, were available all of the time. So there were always consultants around to help with the complex decision making and there were always seniors around to seek support from in my experience where I was working um, and additionally the whole team were really supportive and for example as not knowing how some things worked in that hospital or having not been in adult medicine for a while I really realised that all of the nurses and the more senior doctors really had my back to try and make sure that to try and help me so that as a team we could, could deliver the best care that we could. Yeah, I think for us in critical care, we're in Salisbury, which is one of the regions, it's in the southwest, and it's one of the regions that was relatively spared compared to the national picture. We still did get busy during April, but I would say largely we were making the kind of decisions that we would normally make about whether patients will benefit from intensive care or not. And we, we, we're dealing with a busier workload and we, we had to separate into two separate units, a sort of COVID and a non-COVID unit and ramp up our staffing and we created a, a double the amount of beds and things like that. Um, but, and having to work in PPE and all those kinds of things, which are added stresses. But um, I would say the decision-making uh, was pr pretty similar. Um, I think probably the, our COVID wards with the acute and general physicians um, seeing the patients early on in their course were, were really bearing the brunt of the stresses and, and the dilemmas and deciding uh, amongst the the elderly population and, and the more frail um, who would benefit from varying levels of medical intervention such as CPAP on the ward and whether they'd be candidates for critical care. Now obviously we were helping assist them in making those decisions but as as the, the, the kind of the, the troops on the ground that they were really having to bear the brunt of that and also bearing the brunt of most of the deaths in our hospital as well which mm. was really quite grueling for them and uh, and heartbreaking and uh, and so I really feel for them to be honest. I think it's in terms of thinking about other dilemmas I think it's as the pandemic has progressed that we're really seeing more and more tricky dilemmas and decisions coming to the fore and, and you kind of think about what's happening to other other types of care pathways and an important clinical uh, pathways such as cancer care and um, what's happening with mental health and uh, all these other sort of really important facets of healthcare. A lot of those have been put on hold and and how we're trying to facilitate those things uh, in this new COVID world where it's very difficult to 
maintain normal services whilst you're trying to stop people from getting more COVID. I think those are really, really tricky. And, and some of the questions that we're still wrestling with, to be honest. Yeah, and even in the last couple of days, there have been many going on the record as saying that they're concerned that the NHS may well not get back to normal levels of service in all areas for at least another 12 months. So mm-hmm. it's the knock-on effect of, of COVID-19 is going to be with us for some time to come. Do, do you think we are in a better position if there is another wave or another peak in infections later in the year to cope better than we did the first time around or do you think it it could present even more of a challenge going into the autumn well i I think in some ways yes we are better prepared we know we know better how to manage and treat the disease we we know that we can ramp up um in terms of uh, creating more beds critical care capacity and and so we we've been there done that we've, we've got some experience under our belt now which which is always good but i think that the thing is that as the longer this pandemic goes on and the more there's a, a backlog of really other important work uh, the more that will become a challenge to try and do both at the same time and that's what's going to require lots of creative thinking and and potentially sort of sort of cohorting patients into different areas so that we can we can meet both of those needs the kind of the covid workload as well as the the workload presented by all the other healthcare things that we were doing before covid and so i think in some ways we're better prepared but i guess the other thing to say is that people are quite weary i think all the nhs has has really quite had quite a hard graph these last months and you know hopefully we'll get some recuperation over the summer but if we to get a second wave in the autumn and winter i think people will be facing that in a position of really being weary of this and you know mm. even now we're spending most of our day on the front line in, in ppe which is exhausting you know we're not designed to to be wearing masks and multiple layers of aprons and gloves and uh, and visors all day long and that's that's hard work and it's it, it takes a toll um, and the, the nature of this work takes a toll and so i, I do worry about the, the impact that will have yeah and i think there's other Im- influences as well such as other seasonal illnesses that become more of a problem in winter so specifically thinking about pediatrics now we have been tracking nationally the numbers of junior doctors in paediatrics who were redeployed to help on the COVID wards or help in adult medicine and that number is starting to fall now as they're getting sent back to their normal jobs in paediatrics. In winter every year we have a huge demand on paediatric services and I feel that it would become a real challenge to be able to deliver care for children if we lost any of our doctors in paediatrics to help on adult medicine and there's just so many other factors that can influence our ability to respond in the same way that we have responded. I completely agree with James, there's so much that we can learn from how certain aspects of the response have been really, really helpful and really beneficial. But in many ways, it's been a huge relief on the burden on the NHS that that we were hit at the timing when we, we were hit as we're coming towards the end of the winter crisis and as we're having less of an impact of seasonal illnesses. And so that's something that really concerns me about if we were to have a second peak later in the year. Indeed, with record winter pressures the last two or three years on the NHS, it does raise a great concern that if that all coincides with another COVID peak, we could be looking at something quite, well, to use a word that's been overused, quite unprecedented. Um, And I think Mm. the pressure on the system could could be quite considerable. So it certainly needs a lot of preparation. And I would 
I would suggest a lot of prayer and support for NHS staff in general, I think, at the moment, because as you say, James, that sense of weariness, both mental, physical and spiritual, I think, you know, even people who don't admit to having a faith, the, the, the toll of dealing with that much death and dying and you know, in such unusual circumstances as well, where people are not even being visited by their nearest and dearest in their, in their final hours, that is so tough to deal with. Certainly is. Yeah, sobering thoughts. Um, mm. Any any final thoughts or reflections either of you want to make about the situation and perhaps where we go from here and ways in which we can be supporting and, and encouraging one another? I think I, I was reflecting on what we've learned from this pandemic and maybe how we can prepare for any future crisis. And I, I think the key word for me was resilience and how we can build in more resilience. And I think that's in terms of kind of physical infrastructure and capacity, such as hospital beds, critical care beds and, and equipment such as ventilators and, and things like that. Um, so that you have redundancy in the system to be able to face uh, unprecedented crises, but also resilience for staff in terms of staffing numbers, have, having enough of the different healthcare workers in their different roles so that we, we can work as teams to, to face this demand, but also resilience in terms of our own well-being. And, and as you were saying, Steve, that that is um, a, a multifaceted thing. Um, it's, it's, it's about being holistic about that, that we're humans and we have finite resources and we, we need input in terms of physically, emotionally, as well as spiritually. And, uh, you know, I've, I've had some really quite significant conversations with colleagues during this time because it's been a time to really reflect on life and death. And, and that's something that I think all of us need to to think about more and and and, and probably um uh, people in positions of influence need, need to try and input into so that we can be better prepared next time i think in terms of future dilemmas we've got to think about how we allocate potential new future treatments or antidotes um and also vaccines and you know it's even in the news today about um, this, the, the United States have, has bought up most of the rest of the supplies mm. of remdesivir. And you, you kind of think, is that, is that a, a fair and just um, mm. thing to do when there's the rest of the world crying out and, and there's a real need? And that's something as ethicists we need to think about and, and influence that debate so that we can try and make sure that healthcare needs are met for, for, for people all around the globe. Yeah, also, mm. I completely echo the importance of preparedness and lately I've been reflecting on um, in Genesis where we read about Joseph storing up seven years of grain um, for the seven years of famine that would follow and I think we knew that this pandemic would eventually come we knew that there was a pandemic on the horizon at some point statistically speaking it was likely and um, we know that we are at risk of future peaks and future other illnesses and for me a real key thing is making sure that when we are in times of plenty um, and I'm not speaking from a grain point of view, I'm speaking from more of a public health perspective, that we're making sure that we're prepared for the years of famine that may lie ahead. Mm. And I think that's so important. And I think the other key thing for me is to try and make sure in society that we continue to recognise this lesson that we've learned about the fragility and the value of human life and try and make sure that, that we continue to recognise that whilst also still working towards trying to ensure that that isn't so much of a daily worry for people. Well, thank you very much, James Melody, for a very 
interesting and yeah quite both inspiring but also sobering reflection on, on on what's been happening these last few months and some of the ethical pressures and as you say practical and organizational and spiritual and psychological pressures that's put on the health service you can read james and melody's paper on the cmf website we have a, a link to that in the show notes we hope you've enjoyed this special edition of the first incision If you have enjoyed it, do subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher and all the leading podcast apps. And if you can, do take a couple of minutes to rate this podcast on your chosen app. It's great to get feedback, but it also helps others to find this podcast. So enjoy your summer, stay safe and we'll be back with a new series of The First Incision in the autumn.